0: We are continuing in our series, Ancestry.Bible, as we are hearing the stories of our ancestors as are told in uh, Genesis. Today we come to a really tough passage, Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14, the sacrifice of Isaac. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there on the land which I offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father Abraham, father. And Abraham said, here I am, my son. He said, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son your only son, from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. This is the word of God for all of us. Thanks be to God. I ask you please to pray with me. May the words that I say and the reflections that go through all of our minds give you pleasure, God. You who are our rock. You who save us. Amen. There is the idea of a relationship. And then there's real relationship in the idea of relationship, everything is pretty and easy, and in real relationship, it's frankly often a lot more complicated and challenging. I think of that in my relationship with my sweetheart, Jay. At the beginning, before we started dating, you know, you have these images. We're going to be like intellectually connected and emotionally connected. We're gonna always be really available for each other and have tons of fun. And you know, that's sort of true, <laughs> except for when you're stressed out from work, or not feeling well, or just not on the same zone, and things start getting real. Well, things got even more real after my surgery. Because the surgeons went uh, up through my nose, I came out of surgery with this big wad of cotton up my left nostril. It was really attractive, and that was then there was a string that came out from there. it was taped on my face. so I came out of the hospital with a wad of cotton string taped across my face. It was a really good look. I was really glamorous. Then a couple days later, my headache just exploded. it was so bad and I, they had given me a prescription for codeine. I hadn't filled it because I was pretty sure that my body didn't like codeine. But the headache was so bad, we went and filled it. I took the codeine and then I threw up all over Jay's rug. (laughs) Once we felt well enough to laugh about it, Jay and I looked at each other and said, yeah, we're at a whole new level now. <laughs> like it's just any glamour, gone. We've had the thing up the nose and the tape. We've had the barfing on the rug. We're just, we're at a whole new level. That's real relationship. Or we think about the experience for parents. Those of you who are parents know that when you first find out you're pregnant and it's so exciting and it's, it's thrilling, and you get all those congratulations, and then there are the baby showers, and you get all this cute stuff for the baby, and you set up the room, and you debate about the name, and it's all so exciting. That is that is kind of the idea of what it's going to be like to be parents, and, and all of those things are wonderful, and In addition to that, there are the times when the baby cries and you don't know why the baby is crying, but the baby keeps crying and it's driving you crazy. and You don't know what to to do to fix it for the baby and it's really hard. Or that time when it's in the middle of the night and your child is sick and you just don't know. Okay, is this bad enough? We need to go to the hospital or maybe not. I don't know what to do. Or that feeling as a parent, the first time that you see your child do something willfully mean or destructive, and you think, come on, he's such a sweet child or she's such a sweet child. Where did that come from? Those things happen, you're real parents. You're dealing with the muck of it. You're at a whole new place. I think that those categories can also fit in our relationship with God. There is a kind of more surface, easier relationship with God. And then as we continue to walk with God, it goes to a different level and it gets more difficult and more in the muck. But boy, that surface level is fun. You know, for, for the childhood of our faith or for new Christians, there's that sense of God and you pray and you really have that sense of God's presence and it's wonderful. And you know God as a providing God and you have that sense of guidance and it's beautiful. But it's an earlier stage of our faith before we get into a mature faith. The mature faith in which we're slugging it out with God and saying, come on, what do you mean by that? Or come on, you're like, what? I've been praying and praying, where are you? Those are the things that happen in a more mature faith. The story of God asking Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac is a story of a mature faith. It isn't what happens early on in their relationship. We've been walking through the story of Abram and Sarai who traveled from Haran to Canaan and uh, waited and waited because God had promised to bless all the families of the earth through their descendants, and they waited, and Sarah began to lose hope, so she sent her maid Hagar in to be with Abram, and she became pregnant and had Ishmael, and boy, did that make Sarah jealous, and time continued to pass, and still no baby. And finally, strangers come and they welcome them and they say, Isaac's, you know, the baby's coming. Finally, here comes Isaac. And boy, does Sarah get jealous seeing Isaac and Ishmael together. She doesn't like that one bit. And so out they cast Hagar and Ishmael. But God provides for Hagar and Ishmael. And now we're exactly where we think it's supposed to be. Sarah and Abraham and Isaac. Now, when you hear that, it'd be easy to think, okay, now we're at the easy part. They've gone through all these struggles. They've waited all this time for Isaac to come. Finally now, we got it. Sarah, Abraham, Isaac, we're at the easy part. Except as we continue reading in our Bible, we're not at the easy part. We're in the hardest part there is. Isaac, the one they've waited so long for, is there with them. And then God asks Abraham he tests Abraham asks Abraham to take him and to sacrifice him if we treat this on the level of kind of surface christianity we say well it's it's obvious this is a story about obedience and we need to obey god no matter what and this is easy it's just it's trust and obedience and we're fine and There's some truth to that. This is a story about obedience and trust, but somehow for me that interpretation doesn't go quite deep enough. Are we really talking about a God who asks for the sacrifice of a child? Is that who our God is? And what about Abraham? Now in this passage, Abraham just, God asks Abraham to do it and out Abraham goes. This is the same Abraham who, earlier in Genesis, when God wanted to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham bargained with God and was, now, if there are 50 righteous people, will you save the city? Well, now, what about if there are 40 righteous, would you save the city? And this kind of bargaining. And Abraham bargained for strangers he didn't even know, and then he's just going to automatically leave to sacrifice his son? Really? Really? Over the centuries, people have struggled with this passage and uh, Rabbi Bino Wing shared with me some of the Jewish interpretations of it and I was particularly fond of one that comes from Rabbi Eliezer. I'm going to ask my colleague Scott Himmel to come up and help me with it. This comes out of that very that example that I gave of the tension of if Abraham argued for others, Why in the world would he just automatically accept God's calling to go and sacrifice Isaac? In this interpretation, there's an assumption that what we read in Genesis is only God's side of the conversation, but under Eleazar, he assumes there was a conversation, and so I'll be reading the God parts, which you find in your Bible, but Scott will be reading what Abraham might have said in question. Take your son... Which one? Your favored one. But I have two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, and one is favored by his mother, and the other is favored by his mother. The one you love. But I love them both, so how can I choose? Take Isaac. In that interpretation, God is getting annoyed at Abraham who seems to, well, what about this? What about that? But in some ways, that feels truer to the Abraham that we meet in other passages of Genesis, who wrestles with God, who struggles over, come on, God, really? So that might be a way of interpreting it. Another interpretation comes from the Danish philosopher and theologian, Soren Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard argues um, that, to put it simply, that Abraham made a decision to go that far for God out of trust, but also did it knowing that, God, that, that our God is not one who would demand child sacrifice. The fancy seminary term for this is the teleological suspension of the ethical. How's that for a phrase? Teleological refers to at the end, the end or the purpose, kind of what we see as the end of the story. The ethical, of course, is what we think is right and wrong. Kierkegaard argued that Abraham was able to suspend the ethical, what he knew was wrong or right, in taking his son to go to be sacrificed. He could suspend that because he knew that in the end, God wasn't really going to demand the life of his child. And yet, he had to go right up to the edge of that to show his faith. There is a sense in which we have to deal with that discomfort of God's demands on our lives, including things that we may not want to do or things we think we shouldn't want to do, go right up to the edge of that and even beyond. When we hear this story, many of us imagine Jesus. We imagine Jesus who went right up to the edge and went all the way. Walter Brueggemann, uh, Old Testament scholar taught for many years in Georgia, talks about this passage as an example of two tensions that it's hard for us to say both of these are true of God. But it's an interesting image. He says this is a story about the God who tests and the God who provides. Now, the God who tests. We may not like that very much. We may not think we should be tested. That doesn't sound like a very loving God testing us. But if you read through the Bible, there are many, many passages in which people of faith are tested. This example of Abraham and Isaac is perhaps the most terrifying, but there are other examples of people being put to a test. And when we go into the New Testament, Jesus is baptized by John. What happens? Holy Spirit drives him out into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tested by Satan. And we see Jesus at various points facing tests from different people in his community until he goes to the ultimate test, his experience up on the, um, on the Mount of Olives. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus realizes that crucifixion is the next step and he doesn't want to do it. And so we read that powerful passage of Jesus saying, if there's any way, God, that this cup could pass from me, please. And Jesus also, perhaps after a long time of prayer, says, but not my will, but thine be done. Jesus faces this terrible thing before him, his own torture, crucifixion, and death, and consents, okay, God, I will do this. It is frightening to think of a God who tests us in that way, And yet, testing is something that we do. Maybe we don't think of it as that, but let me give an example. And it's a weird example, but what came to my mind was using public restrooms for a child. When you have a young child, all toileting happens with the parent when the child is very young. Eventually, the child becomes capable of going into, we're going to call him a him, going into his bathroom in his own home alone. Parents test that out. Okay, that worked. If he was able to go to the restroom on his own at home, then maybe the next time we go to grandma or grandpa's house, you know, go someplace else with family. Gee, can they go to the bathroom on their own? Okay, they can. Okay, go to a friend's house. That worked. And the parent is watching all the time. Is this something that the child can do? In time, they go to a public place, but that feels a little safer, maybe like a church. Can he go to the bathroom alone at church? Yeah, that should be okay. And so parents watch that and do step after step. Parents don't look at a three-year-old getting out of diapers and say, yeah, that boy can go alone into the men's room of Union Station in Chicago. We don't do that. There are all these steps along the way with parents watching the child's capacity until one gets to a point of, yep, they they can do that. God watches us. God tests us. Are we able to do these different things? Is there a way in which we can see testing as even a sign of love, checking out how far we have grown in the faith? We struggle with the idea of a testing God, but one would think we like the idea of a providing God. Brueggemann says the God who tests, the God who provides. Now, providing, that sounds good. We get stuff from God. Great. Except the God of provision wants us to walk with God day by day. So we receive things day by day. Oof, that's when it gets tougher. This is the God of manna. God didn't just dump, oh, this is, what, this is all you need for 40 years in the wilderness. Day by day by day, people had to trust in God's provision. Maybe I don't like this providing God quite so much, having to trust day by day. But we see the God who tests, who is also the one who provides in the person of Jesus, who went through the test all the way to the cross and died. No one pulled him out at the last minute. And yet God provided through the resurrection, a, a being risen from the dead in a way beyond our imagining, in a way that made possible through the later sending of the Holy Spirit, the birth of the church. God providing. In the case of Abraham and Isaac, God provided through a ram. Abraham went right up to that edge and was ready, had the knife up. and God said, no, don't have to do it. Brothers and sisters, I don't know where you come down on this passage, and I don't have an easy answer for you. I wish I, I wish I did, but I just don't. I've read over these many interpretations, I'm intrigued by them, and I'm still struggling with it. So I can't make it pretty and tie it up in a bow for you. But I know that this is telling us something powerful about who God is, that although God may at times test us, even in those tests, there is provision. Provision that God can provide for what we need in that circumstance. I also wonder at times whether this passage is intentionally that difficult so that we do have to fight with it, so that it doesn't resolve easily, so that it becomes something that sticks with us as we try to get clearer and clearer about who we understand God to be. Is our God a loving God? What does that love look like? how does God's provision come? Do I truly put God first? May we hear this passage and trust that the God who offers this is the God who provides. Walter Brueggemann said said that faith is nothing other than a powerful trust in the face of deathly circumstances. I'm sorry, a powerful trust in the resurrection in the face of deathly circumstances. Can we be people who are in, at times, unspeakable circumstances and say, okay, God, I'm trusting you. I don't know how you're going to work it. I don't know what your provision is going to look like. But I trust that you will provide. So walk with me, God, and show me the way. Amen.